Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Welcome back to the Secondary Survey. This is part two of our mental health special. Hopefully, this is going to be released on the 10th of October, which is International Mental Health Day. We thought it was important uh, on this day to reflect on our own mental health and mental health of responders. We've all been experiencing the global pandemic that is COVID-19. And when we have to respond in a prolonged period like that, it can be akin to dealing with a, a disaster on different scales. When we looked into a bit of this, how responders and communities deal with disaster, there's a couple of defined kind of phases within a disaster. We talk about this heroic phase where, and if everyone thinks back to the start of the, the pandemic, you'll remember everybody was coming together and um, mobilizing as, as one group of people with a combined aim to protect ourselves and protect our communities. Followed then by the honeymoon phase where, you know, everything was, was okay, was getting better. Uh, and then we're now in, probably have been in for a while, this disillusionment phase. Okay, where we were under more pressure and things like that. And then following on from that, hopefully we're going to move out of this disillusionment phase into this re-stabilization phase. And that's generally how disasters unfold from a community and responder level. And it's really, really interesting that the responders' psychological responses to these disasters and to these phases mirror the community's response as well. Um, and I'm I'm really glad to be joined again by Dr. Anne Payne, who is going to uh, expand on some of the, that psychological response um, stuff from the responder side of things and reflect how it mirrors the community as well. Um, so, Anne, thanks again for joining us. Um, Thank you, Stephen. So I suppose just we're in this disillusionment phase now. I'm sure many responders can uh, appreciate that it's it's maybe a tough time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I suppose, when, when should we be concerned that, that tough times are becoming more than just tough times? If, you know, as in, when, when is it starting to affect our, our mental health? Yeah, um, and that's a really good question. And before I go into that, I just want to acknowledge, you know, the heroic and the honeymoon phases that Ireland experienced. I mean, a lot of that credit went to the paramedics who went over and above and beyond their usual roles in doing all sorts of home testing and protecting the community way in advance um, than other countries did. And it was outstanding. The, yeah. the response was outstanding. Thank you. And I suppose just, just I suppose to make sure we don't exclude anyone, it is not just paramedics, the, the emergency medical technicians, other other responders, yeah. the defence forces, uh, all who stood up and yeah. really helped with that um, unified response to the 100%, thing. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so it was it was it was it was a, a proud time to be part of of the Irish, Irish nation and a great yeah. team effort, and that, and that was the really and that's I suppose it's it's a good reflection of that heroic yeah. honeymoon phase it's, you know if you were to encapsulate that that's right that's a, it's a really good example of it isn't it absolutely and um 
And from that, when you get the heroic phase, the pendulum will always swing. So the pendulum swang, sw- swung? Swung. <laughs> swung backwards. You can delete that, Viv. <laughs> the pendulum swung backwards, and now we're in the disillusionment phase. Um, so there's a general feeling of diminishing resources are putting pressures on everybody, that there's a lot of irritation about the teamwork sense that was there is now gone, that it's like almost every man for themselves. And the fatigue is setting in. Compassion fatigue can set in quite quickly when this happens. So how do you know when you're in trouble? And I think this is one of the important questions. If I just talk from personal experience, I suffered depression myself years ago, about 20 years ago, and I didn't recognize it for 18 months. And I was a psychiatrist. So I just think it's important to share that because if I couldn't recognize it in myself and I was treating people at the time with depression and anxiety and other things and I didn't recognize it in myself. So I thought um, if I if I couldn't help myself then until it was quite late, then I want people to be able to recognize it in themselves. So what happened to me was I started things that I'd normally find easy at work. I was working in the emergency department at the time. Things that I'd normally find easy popping up an IV on a two-year-old just didn't I just I was overwhelmed um, and uh, the the volume of patients coming in was irritating me I was getting annoyed with people who were in other teams I was irritable I found that I couldn't sleep I was bringing problems at work home with me um, I was waking early in the morning I was anxious about going into work I thought there's going to be a disaster and it's going to be all my fault um, I my ability to cope with was very diminished. So um, I thought there was something physically wrong with me. I thought I had some sort of chronic flu, which is typical of um, somebody lacking insight and, Twice. you know, had absolutely no idea that it was really psychological. And the fact that our minds and bodies are connected sometimes is dismissed by all of us. Okay. So... It's really important to know that if you're getting physical symptoms, they could be reflective of your mental health as well. And that that is what happened to me. Suppose really the bottom line was I didn't know how bad I was really until I got to the point where it was like, I'm a burden on everybody. I'd be better if I wasn't here. So when I thought that thought, I thought, well, that's that's really strange and very alien to me so I rang one of my friends and I said is this a normal thought because up until this point I got sure no wonder you're you're anxious you've just had a baby no wonder you can't sleep you just had a baby no wonder you feel awful you've just had a very bad case you know Mm. if you get all those reassurances all the time that's an alarm bell it doesn't work anyway it didn't make any sense to me well maybe that is it maybe that's what's wrong with me I just can't deal with Uh, I I think that's a very Irish phenomenon as well everybody reassures everything away yeah that's it so if you're if you're hearing just from a general feedback point of view no wonder no wonder no wonder just stop and reflect and say hang on a second now is this normal though for me and so I rang my friend and my friend said no that is definitely not a normal thought and no it's not something that you can ignore so I ended up going to the GP and of course all the symptoms I listed out were depressive symptoms, a lot of anxiety and of course I 
the good thing was I was able to respond to an antidepressant and I went to therapy and I had a good response. So I'm sharing that because I think that it's really important to realize A, that it can be difficult for us to recognize it in ourselves and B, that there is treatment and you can get better. That's really important yeah. to know. Thanks for sharing that. I'm... Yeah, I hope it's not too boring. No, people, not I, at all. And then, so how do you recognize it in yourself when you're faced with trauma after trauma, like paramedics, EMT, AMS, um, civil defense, RNLI, everybody, they're going to traumas. How do you know when you're in trouble? What would you think, Stephen? I suppose having a lot of things you you were just listed out yourself when you were experiencing you know that compassion fatigue mm-hmm. um having this short fuse you know where you're getting irritated that you're having to do calls or yeah. things like that not making yourself available so i know from a volunteer perspective you might decide well you know a text goes out looking for somebody to yeah. help yeah you might say i've got something i have to do that is more important Uh, and you may be just using that as an excuse not to put yourself in that position again yeah for example um i suppose those physical symptoms that fatigue Mm -hmm. that you know um and having those thoughts that maybe that you know you're you're not good enough or Mm -hmm. you're not able for it or Mm -hmm. you're not you know you can't handle the situation Mm -hmm. those kind of things yeah i think they're really important to recognize and you know like we all have those symptoms at times like um to kind of we can kind of flit in and out and a bit of imposter syndrome here and there but if it sticks i think if anything sticks for a longish time you need to do something about it so the alarm bells should go off if you're having difficulties in any area like sleep um, energy um, concentration even experiencing no joy like if you have any of those things then you really need to get an assessment done and the pathway for that would be to go to your gp and yeah. get an independent assessment done okay. as soon as possible because you are worth treatment you know yeah and we often have such a stigma ourselves like i remember when i was taking an antidepressant it really killed me to actually have to take an antidepressant yeah i thought it was a failure to do it okay you almost have to forgive yourself for needing help yeah and that's really important and i think as as caring professionals we we spend so much time caring for other people yeah that sometimes we don't care about ourselves that's and um we think you know and a lot of the things that you might have described there I'm just kind of, as you were listing them off, I'm just kind of thinking, it just sounds like a bad run of night shifts. Yeah, do you exactly. Know? exactly. Uh, but it's when it's when that becomes a longer problem. Yes. Do you know, when you're when that's starting to spill into your personal life. That's right. Uh, and things like that, it's really important yeah. to, to identify that, to, to, you know, and yeah. not use those excuses. Oh, I've just had yeah. f- five nights in a row and been very busy. And, yes. But it's now two days post night shift and I'm still feeling fatigued. And that's I'm still right. feeling like, don't have the energy to get up in the morning or correct you know i don't want to do anything or you know starting to affect my personal life and things like that you know so that they're the important as you're saying that those flags that we need to start picking up on correct and if you have those symptoms like i did or any of them in any shape or form if you have them for longer than two weeks you can get a diagnosis of depression you know it's quite short so People think that oh, I'll get over it in a few months, I'll be fine. But a few months is really a long time when you're suffering like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there is a bit of a, it's, I don't know if it's an Irishism or is it just um, that kind of 
you know, Eric will be fine. It'll mm. be grand. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'll get over it. I'll just, yeah. you know, I'll take a, you know, with the especially the way the ambulance service rosters work, you tend to work a, a, a block of many yeah. shifts and then you're off for a period of time and people yeah. kind of get to that period of time hoping that that'll fix it, you know, yes, and then before true. you know it, you're you're on the next block. That's right. And you don't have that downtime to yeah. decompress and stuff. Yeah. Um, very good. So I suppose... Is there other things we need to be thinking about with regards... With the experience of trauma and distress and stuff, yeah. So it's not just depression that you can kind of experience. Um, We were talking earlier, Stephen, about um, acute stress disorder. And that can happen once you're, you know, if you have a particularly bad incident or a cumulative effect of a number of incidents. I suppose before I even go into the acute stress disorder, it's important to say that... And many caring professions have an experience of, you know, because we're older when we're in there, um, you're, we're developed from our childhood. So if we've had any adverse childhood events, it might predispose us to be a lot more sensitive or a lot more susceptible to any trauma that we're going to experience when we're older. So um, just because you experience something and somebody else doesn't doesn't mean that you're weaker. In fact, it probably if you acknowledge it means that you're stronger because you're facing it. So just looking at the acute stress disorder, if you think of this as a sort of an early version of PTSD, which is later, so some people might experience again, it, we look at a spectrum now of say traffic light, there's there's green for go and then there's, Um, yellow orange and red and we'll go into those later but the yellow orange and red lead from um, temporary injury to illness so if you look at the acute stress disorder if you have um, intrusive thoughts like nightmares flashbacks and memories and in fact this is really interesting because you know especially firefighters the sense of smell or the sense of burning or can trigger certain memories for them and mm-hmm. um, it's the same for for any kind of first responder our senses can be triggers to these memories and yeah. also moods can be triggers to these memories so we store our uh, memories with affect with moods with emotions so when we're in a certain mood or experiencing a certain emotion we'll be able to retrieve those memories easily so if we're low all we're retrieving are the the negative memories so we feel like our whole world like our self world and our future is all negative again back to Beck's triad so memories are important in that way which memories are we thinking about are we being preoccupied by the negative things all the time again we can have physical and psychological responses to certain triggers it can you know certain triggers can cause panic feelings or fight or flight um and then you can have avoidance where you just don't want to as you described you you won't put yourself in a situation where you're exposed again avoidance behaviors and that can make you irritable around people like if you know to be asked to do a job and this irritability is very interesting because you find that the people who might need help mostly are the irritable people now that includes ourselves if irritability starts to build in us that we can't shake that's a bit of a red flag i think because it wouldn't normally be the way somebody would respond and then a colleague who's irritable 
is actually hard to address, isn't it? Yeah. So, but it's just a little kind of flag there that they might, if this is a change for them, that they're acting up, then then that's the that might be something that we need to be aware of. Difficulty sleeping, hypervigilance, and a, a startle response. We've talked about negative co- cognitions and all those awful emotions like guilt, blame, and anger. You can have dissociative symptoms like amnesia or altered sense of, like everything around you is a bit unreal. So that that's the acute stress disorder, and you can see how that might develop into the PTSD symptoms that people experience over a longer period of time. So PTSD then, as we say, post-traumatic stress disorder, people who have PTSD, most of them, like 50% of them have experienced the acute stress disorder. So if, okay. we, can, if we can actually treat the acute stress disorder early can prevent the PTSD theoretically. Yeah, like a stitch in time saves nine. Exactly. And just with the experience of, say, after disasters, say, after 9-11 and 7-7 in London, the responders in 9-11, 10% or more experienced PTSD for a very, very long time, actually. And they found that a lot of them didn't get the right help. They weren't screened and they refused to get help in in the first place. So when 7-7 happened, they had an intervention in post-disaster follow-up where they used 10-item trauma screen questionnaire, um, which is a very easy questionnaire to fill out. And it's something you could do yourself if you're worried about it. And that way they were able to guide people into appropriate responses then. So these disasters are useful uh, sort of after the fact. It's a bit like the military do very useful research that we can use in civilian land. It's the same kind of thing. So we draw from those experiences. The main thing is to reflect, why am I feeling that way? Maybe I'll do a little check on myself. I can bring that to the GP. That's if you're inclined that way. Some people can't fill out questionnaires when they're feeling upset or low or, you know, if things aren't going right. Yeah, and I suppose we, I suppose, certainly within the first responder network in Ireland, we have peer-to-peer support Correct. groups which can assist with that. Yeah. That you, you know, you may not have to fill in the questionnaire yourself. Correct. That if you can, even if you know enough that you're not right. Yeah. You can seek out help from a peer support yes. worker mm-hmm. um, who can assist you then maybe putting, you know, your kind of thoughts and feelings into that kind of questionnaire or paper format that'll maybe be the first step. To, to you seeking more formal help, I suppose. Oh, I think that would be brilliant, yeah. yeah. I mean, even to be able to connect thoughts and feelings when you're feeling like that is quite difficult. So, yeah, to have somebody there as a peer is really useful and really helpful. So I suppose you, you mentioned some of the, the the traffic light system about, you know, the green, yellow, orange and red. What kind of things, I suppose, okay um, mm-hmm. to... To experience after an event um, and when does when do those feelings become a problem I suppose okay so the Canadian forces came up with this really nice spectrum and it's easy to look up on the um, internet if anyone's interested and um, the green is is all systems go we're all hunky-dory we're facing the stressors they're not it's not getting to us um, yellow is kind of if you think of it in temporary form so you dip into the yellow where you've got mild or transient distress or maybe mild or transient loss of functioning but it goes away and you're a low risk for illness and okay. um, this can be caused by any stressor and in fact 
even the minor stressors are the things that can get us after a cumulative effect. So the features of the transient reaction to stressors would be, you know, irritability, again, that big one, anxiety, feeling low, difficulty sleeping, muscle tension, not having any fun. So a bit like what I was mentioning, what I experienced myself, except that, you know, it didn't go away. So in the yellow zone, you can fall back to the green zone on a daily basis even. You know, okay. even within a few hours, you can go yeah. from yellow to green or green to yellow. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's, they're transient. It's what we face, what we're trained for. Uh, recognize this and just move on. When we get to the orange phase, though, it's more pers- more severe and more persistent. And it's kind of, as they describe it, leaves a bit of a scar and you're at higher risk for illness here. Okay. Um, and then like the causes here are, you know, threat to life, inner conflict, wear and tear. So we're getting into the edge of severe burnout here, even though I don't really like that word. But it's more of a, a chronic. It's more it's up. more stuck. Exactly. Yeah. You're not falling back into yellow and green. You're not. It's not transient. It's stuck. Okay. So in any of the symptoms, if you think of it in four areas like thoughts, feelings, physical symptoms and behaviors, in any of those four arenas, if you have anything that's stuck of any kind, any sort of symptom or feeling or thought or behavior, in particular substance misuse, then you need to get help. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like often in Ireland, we use drink, um, maybe drugs as a, as a crutch. Yeah. So that's something to be really hyper acute about because that can be a real risk. And then if you don't get the help on time there, you can fall into the ill section, which is red. And that's when you're becoming a risk. You're experiencing severe mental health issues like the PTSD, severe depression, anxiety and substance dependence. And that's when things are really, you know, you really need to get help as soon as possible. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose, you know, from a, just, I suppose, unpacking all that a little bit. The, the, the green and the yellow really are our kind of day-to-day stressor. We kind of, you know, as you become under pressure, you might flip into yellow a little bit, but then yes. you should go back to green. Correct. Um, and then as that becomes, you know, chronic build-up of stress or yeah. those big critical incidents that might happen, yeah, they, they can bring you into that orange stage Correct. there. And it's 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 at that point really we want to like even I suppose yeah. if the yellow is becoming problematic you're going to be brought up is the orange when people get into that orange injured state is injured. It's, that's the seeking help kind definitely of, yeah. you definitely need somebody objective looking after you there the yeah. peer support can help with the the yellow yeah as a as a, as a kind of a um, help you to get back to the green again okay, yeah. you know yeah whereas you're looking at you need professional help when you get into the injured and ill zones. Okay, and yes. I, I really think it's nice to think of them in colours because it's not, you're not unusual. We're not unusual. We, we can get unwell even because we're caregivers, mm-hmm. just because we don't like to think of ourselves as having failed by becoming ill, we, I think, which is the big thing. Then, you know, if you think of it just as the traffic light is stuck on the, the orange and the red, yeah. then you just have to get that dealt with. Yeah. And it is treatable very treatable okay now i suppose is there anything that we can kind of do to 
as preventative medicine, I suppose, to help, you know, keep us in that yellow and green area? Like, is there any, I don't like the word resilience, but is there, is there something we can do as, as people, as responders, uh, that can give us tools maybe to help combat the risk or reduce the risk of us going maybe from the yellow into the orange you know like especially i'm thinking around that wear and tear yes. stuff the inner conflicts that chronic yes. build-up of of um of stress yes um i think that you know it's multifactorial isn't it i mean what you're doing here and highlighting mental health for um first responders in our community i think this is brilliant um and that's one of the things is educating ourselves that this is this can happen it can happen to all of us yeah um one of the things I, I like to tell people is to take their mental health pulse check, which is, you know, just physically putting your hand on your pulse and can't, don't even count it. Just feel your pulse there and see how it is, see what it feels like. It stops you from looking after everybody else because yeah. you're doing, say, picture you, you will do vitals on everybody you meet. You're doing assessments on everybody you're meeting patients wise, but you're not assessing yourself yeah. at all. So if you'll allow yourself just a short time, just put your hand on your pulse and say, where am I at now? You're not counting, you're not assessing your pulse unless there's something abnormal yeah. there. But where am I now? And reflect on how you're feeling and give yourself that time to sort of um, explore a little bit with people that you trust Yeah. and get some feedback if you need it. Um, this can be someone at work, a colleague at work, or it can be family members, or it could be um, um, a professional. You know, yeah. I think that's the only way forward. I think the management systems in most places are trying to address um, the compassion fatigue and the overwhelming phase of disillusionment that we're at at the moment. And people might feel leadership is lacking, but I think they're trying their best to try and, and combat um, the general feelings that, that are about at the moment, but they're probably feeling way behind. So I think they're probably feeling the same yeah, it's, it's, burnout it's as well. Exactly. Like they're, they've been under similar stresses to, yeah. albeit in a different setting Yes, to, to everybody. We've all been under this very similar pressure, I suppose. But there's no doubt that good leadership though, whether the leadership is um, distant from you or in, you know directly in front of you if you've good if you've a good leader a good group leader who's solid and supportive it makes a massive difference to your working environment so those yeah. are protective factors as well yeah very so. good brilliant thanks Anne that was really interesting I'm joined by Brian Doyle a firefighter paramedic recently retired from Dublin Fire Brigade in April He's now working uh, part-time as a researcher in Trinity and also works for Family Carers Ireland. And he is currently um, assisting with a project from the RCSI called Hugs at Home. Um, I'm delighted to have Brian with us today. He's um, His role in Dublin Fire Brigade used to encompass being part of the SISM team for Dublin Fire Brigade as a peer supporter. Brian, thanks very much for joining us. Um, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here and thanks for the, the invite. Very kind of you. This will be going out on the 10th of October and uh, the whole kind of focus on this part of the mental health uh, episode was really all around first responder mental health and how we deal with our own mental health after incidents. 
one of the, I suppose, the biggest things that lots of people would be familiar with yeah, in first responder organizations would be the, the idea of CISM or critical incident stress management. So as a critical incident stress management peer supporter, can you just maybe give me a background about why CISM is important and what is CISM? I'll do my best to yeah, provide that for you, Stephen. I suppose I joined Dublin Fire Brigade in 94 and I never heard of CISM, I suppose, when I joined. And there was no, there was no mention of when I did my training or that. It wasn't, wasn't part of the, the landscape in, in Dublin Fire Brigade or any first responder organization within Ireland at the time. But it did evolve over the years, thanks, thanks mainly to some of the, the firefighters, like so Mark Brannigan and, and Adrian O'Grady, who, who pushed it and, and kind of looked to the States to get the information on it. So basically, when we were, we were at incidents and if we had some of the reactions that um, we might speak about later, there was nothing. It was kind of, I think the, the mentality was you, you put your feelings in the locker when you arrived in and you, you, you took them out when you were on your way home. And that, that's the way we kind of dealt with things. But thankfully, we've moved on from there. So um, I think critical incident stress management in kind of terms of, of Dublin Fire Brigade, they've very much followed the International Congress of Stress Foundation in the States. And we would be trained by them. Our, our instructors will be trained up by them. Um, and the model is, is very much around like the, the bulk of our, our, our the work within DFP would be around education. So edu- uh, educating people on the stress reactions and that the, the reactions to the incidents themselves are, are perfectly normal. And it's, it's the incident itself is, is abnormal or there are things that we see is, is a bit ab- abnormal. So that's kind of the, the the bulk of the work is, and then we, as you mentioned there, we have, have the peer support element of it. So the peer support is, is basically around that person or colleagues within Dublin Fire Brigade um, can come and talk to a peer supporter. And um, when they're talking to the peer supporter, they don't have to explain, you know, the, the aspects of the job because the peer supporter works within that, that environment as well and gets it and knows, knows can, can relate to what they've been told so they can concentrate then on the, the reactions and the impact the reactions are having on on person in, in question. So I think like that's sometimes a misconception about critical incident stress management that it might be counselling or, you know, in, in that respect, but it, it's really just to you know, the, the purpose of the peer support or, and, and critical incident stress management per se is to kind of stabilise the reactions and, and provide a safe place for a person to talk about the reactions and the impact they're having on them and then we would, you know, look at coping mechanisms and you very much look at the coping mechanisms that the person has used already or, or you know, like if they like taking exercise, some people like running, walking, swimming, you know, things like that, or reading and things like that. So you kind of remind them of, of, of how they, they cope with stressful incidents within their, their own everyday lives and that. The, as you kind of said there, the that CISM isn't counselling. Um, CISM is, I suppose, should be seen as that sort of preventative medicine. So the, the, an early intervention to stop what might be, I suppose when we were talking to Dr. Anne Payne earlier, she was talking about this acute stress disorder, which if it isn't dealt with early on, can develop up into post-traumatic stress disorder. And yeah. they found a lot of stuff from disasters like uh, 9-11. And when there wasn't early intervention, more people went on to develop this post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's really important to have that early intervention, which CISM is, is one potential for that. So that's very true, Stephen. Yeah. And it probably points out to the points to the, the kind of the thinking behind CISM much that you're, you know, it's the proximity within that workforce or you're within that, that organization immediacy that, you know, that 
we, we would always try and after an incident that we would actually have a, a talk or, or meet up with the, the crews involved before they actually go home. So the, you kind of you make them aware of some of the reactions that they may have. So at least when they do have these reactions that they know they're normal, that you, you normalize that side of it. Post-traumatic stress disorder tends to come. Diagnosis of it is it has to be after four weeks. So we would certainly hope that the majority of those reactions would have would have eased by that time, you know, that there would be a gradual easing and that would be our expectation. But we would also let the, the people know that if they if they find that that isn't that, you know, after four weeks or after a period of time, it doesn't seem to be getting any better or easing. We, we can still work with that. We have, we have other things we can do. We can link in with mental health professionals and, and things like that. Our system will be very much based around psychological first aid. So it's, you know, you're you're looking out for the signs and symptoms of, of the stress reaction. Uh, you're listening, you're opening up those lines of communication with the person. And if needs be, you have the link then to, to further care if they need it. SISM is supposed to be seen rightly or wrongly as, as a, a sort of the first formal type of intervention when it comes to acute stress disorder. Do you find any benefit from your experience? Uh, you were saying earlier that you've been a peer support worker from since about 2013. Yeah. Um, do you find there's, I suppose, certainly I've never been a firefighter, but I imagine from the outside looking in, it's quite a, a good team bond. You know, you work as a crew, as, as a group of professionals. Is there much benefit or have you found much benefit from the informal stuff, you know, the debriefing, you know, post-incident informal kind of having a laugh around the crew room and the de-stressing side of things? Is is, is there any I suppose there is there any evidence around benefit of that, or is it is there a downside to it that maybe we don't recognise? Yeah, definite benefits to it, I think, and and you're right, there is that bond. I mean, it's probably people have asked me since April, do I do I miss the job? And and my answer is I don't miss the nights. I certainly don't miss the weekends, but I do miss that banter and that connection with the crew and that you do miss that kind of camaraderie, I suppose. And I and I suppose would have joined the job when Sism wasn't there and and would have would have gone to kind of serious enough incidents and had had kind of those reactions i do remember that like when we came back especially after something you know one of some of the bigger incidents in that that there was this coming together and and i think coming when i joined there was a, a lot of banter and interaction around the mess halls and having cups of tea and stuff like that and that probably has faded away a bit in the last few years with the, the onset of mobile phones and you know people kind of doing their own thing on their phone and we probably won't get that interaction but i have noticed even with that kind of distraction when we when we had the big incidents or when we had something you know quite serious we tended to fall back into that kind of get together have a cup of tea when we came back out or something like that and have the chat so there is there, there is definitely definite benefits, benefits to that because it does kind of normalize the um the reaction to it and normalize you know that the fact that this is you know, one of the, the roles that we do. And as you say, you probably alluded to there is it's the banter and the dark humor, which is all I think this research has pointed out that that, that is important too. Definitely, you, you probably describe them as the informal, but they are kind of formal interventions that we would have in, in relation to the diffusings and, and the debriefing. So the, the diffusing, as I probably said earlier, is is more a, an immediate thing that we try and talk to, to crews before they actually go home um, or leave the station. So they're not uh, ruminating on the reactions that they have, have that kind of normalizing talk from ourselves to say listen you know you may have these reactions and, and it's perfectly okay the debriefing then is, is probably even an even more formal intervention and that would take normally take place within two or three days of an incident um, and that's kind of a more it's it's probably a more structured conversation around the incident and 
more so the reaction to the incident and you know that would have to have a mental health professional who, who would run that that debriefing and actually in my experience with Dublin Fire Brigade we don't have an awful lot of debriefings we do have them but we don't have an awful lot of the debriefings but we would do an awful lot of the defusings which tend to if the defusing goes well sometimes it negates the need to have the debriefing afterwards because you know people have uh, have, have kind of you know you know they, they kind of they're expecting the reactions that, that they get sometimes so it does take away that kind of the the, the, the effect that the reaction can have if they're not not expecting it, or if they don't, if they think there is something wrong. Because maybe one of the downsides of of that kind of coming together and having the banter is some of the younger members and are the newer members of, of of the organization and the crews may be struggling a bit, or may kind of be having the reaction, and and but they think everybody else is okay, and and sometimes it may be a little bit slow to put the hand up and say, well, you know, I'm kind of struggling a little bit here so that's why we, we would spend an awful lot of time with the recruits when they're in the train and kind of we would go we own in to meet them and some of the educational pieces with them so that they are aware that these reactions are normal and and, and they get to know the members of the system team as well so that when they meet them out in the road that they can say okay well you know that's somebody i can go to or that's somebody i can talk to they, they feel you know they they've already kind of met them or they kind of know them in, in some shape or form you know so as you say, yeah, there's probably for and against that, but um, yeah, as I say, we tend to kind of revert to that. You know, we, we get together when we come back uh, after an incident, which is probably one of the the, the good things of the, the fire service as well, that we have that, that kind of connection or that bond with our, with our crews. It's great to have that ability to do that. Certainly in my time at the National Ambulance Service, you often work as, as I'm sure you you know when you're working on the ambulance, it's, yeah. it's you and the other person. And often even when you go back to a station, you're going back to an empty station. It's not like yeah. uh, there won't be a fire tender or an appliance or other other crews available, you know, in, in lots of stations around the country. Yeah. Funny you mentioned the ambulance, but we do a, a lot of one-to-one interventions where you know people would be struggling a bit or they would have... Uh, questions for you or whatever you know and and you know i always found that most of the the one-to-ones were done in, in the front of an ambulance where you're especially when it's it's two men it's because you're sitting side by side you don't have to look at each other but you know you can have that talk and uh, you know feel a little bit safer to have that talk and that will be the experience of, of a lot of the peer supporters in the organization that a lot of the time you're you're sitting in the front of the ambulance you, you probably know yourself you, you talk about everything you know sometimes it's not even that you're someone says this and can i talk to you as, as a citizen peer supporter you're just talking to you and then you realize oh this this could be a you know this person is asking for a little bit of help or they're a little bit worried about something that's probably borne up by the evidence i, I don't know off the top of my head but you, you often think to the you know the pub, not that alcohol is the answer but in, even in the pub sitting at the bar you know side by side you you, you have all sorts of conversations with your buddy when you're sitting next to him at a, at a pub as opposed to across from a table for that reason that you don't have to look at yeah them, you know it's a yeah. it's a very male thing I, I don't know what the problem or why, why we do it there's probably some evidence around it but yeah i think that it goes back to the around the campfire that you all sit around the campfire but that you know we were shoulder to shoulder and you know it was dark so they couldn't see each other and that was kind of people felt safer Say for talking, yeah, it is definitely a male thing, all right. Yeah, no, but it's it's a very interesting thing that that you found that that you know, and 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 it would bear out that you you find uh, lots of things that you you know when you're sitting, you do talk about everything when you're sitting in the front of an ambulance side by side because. You know, it's a, it's a very informal. It feels much more informal, and there's not, there's no there's a, that psychological safety, I suppose, because of the setting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. very good. Just the the point about the recruits and 
the banter and maybe the the feeling of not being able to speak up because you know you're you're new in a job and you're you know you're not supposed you're not trying to seem like you're unable for the job or you're you know you don't want to come across as feeling weak which is you know all understandable feelings be them right or wrong you were mentioning earlier how you did a bit of research around that and how you found that a lot of the newer staff tend to talk to their family first as opposed to their colleagues, um, which I suppose leads us on to this, the, the project uh, that you're involved with at the moment, Hugs at Home. Uh, could you maybe yeah. expand a bit more on that for us? Yeah, well, it's, 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 I think it's all ages and, and levels of experience within first responders would lean quite heavily on, on social support, on, on family members predominantly, but it could be a very close friend or, or I think one of the terms we, we have found in the literature is it, it's trusted others. You know, it's someone that you would you would talk to or with about any problem. It just so happens that sometimes it's work related. I suppose the, the very quick kind of recap of the, the research that we did with the recruits, it was it's probably how, how I got involved in research in the first place was we decided we'd, we'd have a chat and, and do a bit of a, a survey with our rec- uh, recruit class that were in. 2014 and 2015 so they were literally about two weeks away from finishing their training and going operational so they'd done all their training so we went in and we were having a chat with them and we, we did a, a survey with them just to see what they were you know what they expected was going to come up you know in the job and what they were worried about and so we said we'd come back to them after a year so our recruits go back to the to training center after a year and you know they do kind of pass outs and assessments and things so we went in again and we had a chat but we did a couple of focus groups as well as surveys this time but one of the things we asked them was you know when you're dealing with stress at work um, or stressful situations after you know in work when you you know who do you who would you turn to and we listed a few like Citizen peer supporters, officers, colleagues, and and family members, um, and family members and friends was the the top answer, you know, which kind of surprised us and, and kind of shocked us a little bit because we were after kind of investing a lot of time in these recruits, you know, tell them about Sism and stuff like that. Um, now they were very appreciative that we were there, and it wasn't that they wouldn't talk to to the Sism. It was just that the family member was the first part of call. Um, so we actually started a family night within Dublin Fire Brigade. So uh, within the first four weeks of their training, the recruits are invited to bring their families in for an evening and they get a couple of talks by the course director and, you know, what the training involved and the paramedic course involves. And then they get a the SISM talk. So it's basically, you know, explain to the family that their, their loved one is, is going to change by virtue of the job that they're doing. And be some days that they're going to have, or sometimes they're going to have, bad days and bad nights and you know it will impact on on their home life because they're going to bring these reactions home they may be irritable you know not sleeping properly and it's mainly to kind of reassure the family that it's not them that it's it's something related to their role but it's also to inform the recruits that listen you know when you do have a bad day or a bad night to you know let people know at home you don't have to go into the details but just let them know that that you have and that that it kind of explains that that uh, reaction that they might be having that they might be a little bit out you know out of character or, or, or out of sorts and so that was quite successful and and uh, i know from talking to some of our colleagues in the in the states and in europe that it's something that they're looking at and, and some of the states in america are, are, are running similar programs or, or just started similar programs so based on that i think um there was a call went out a couple of years ago through november called the mustaches in november and they would you know there would be a good take up within first responders and emergency service around the world for the, for that charity or for that fundraiser. But they were looking for research projects in around, you know, mental health, first responders. So Michelle uh, O'Toole, another member of the CISM team and, and who's now in RCSI, had the idea that maybe we would apply for this this funding uh, while, while we were still in DFB, but it, it didn't really work out 
is very hard within an organization an organization like that to apply for that sort of type of funding. So Michelle actually left and, and went into RCSI on a, on a different project, but still had that idea in, in the back of her, her mind. And through RCSI, applied for the funding and, and was successful. So just 15 projects worldwide have, have received that funding and were the only project in, in Ireland that has the Movember funding. So the, the project is basically, it's, it's kind of the, the next step in from the family night. So we're actually hoping to, you know, we're, we're endeavoring to train family members um, our trusted others in basic psychological first aid. So they will just, as I described earlier, they'll look, listen and link. So we're going to do that through uh, SIM enhanced training. So we will give them pre-intervention training, you know, course reading and stuff. Um, and then they'll come into the SIM center in, in the RCSI uh, for a day and they, they'll practice the, these new skills. We will have uh, simulated participants who will play the role of the first responder and they will be coming home after, as you say, the, the typical bad day and they will be displaying some of the reactions. So it'll give the a safe environment for the family member to practice the, the skills and the communication skills and, you know, looking out for the signs of symptoms and that. Um, so that's the project at the moment. We, we have I think we've uh, upwards of 25 people who have already expressed an interest in the project. We're doing a pilot day next week with our, our simulated participants and hopefully uh, next month we will run our first intervention with the people that have, have you know, um, expressed an interest in, in signing up. So I know you, you said you can you, you'll be able to put a few details in, in the description for the podcast if people are interested as well as say hugs at home. .eu is, is the link for our website and all the details are there. If any first responders or family members of first responders would like to, to know more and maybe uh, get involved in, in the project. That sounds really promising, really interesting. Just to clarify, first responders, I know on the posters and stuff, it's firefighters or paramedics. Is, is it open to any first responder or is it mostly around the firefighter paramedic? We decided, you know, when you're designing the, a project like this, that we would keep it to uh, firefighters and paramedics for, for this stage of it. We have already had expressions of interest from other first responders, like the likes of guards, military personnel, and like that. So we're not ruling out that it might go down that road at some stage. We have to kind of, we have to set the criteria for, you know, when you're setting up research projects like this, you have to have a certain criteria to, you know, when you're, because we want to evaluate the intervention as we go along. So we will talk to, we will talk to the people before, you know, we get, get information off the people before they actually start the intervention. We get them immediately after the intervention, we get their, their, their views and opinions through focus groups and one-to-one interviews and, and surveys. And then after six to nine months, uh, post intervention, we'll we'll do the same again. Get the the views and and the opinions of the the people and see how they're doing. You know, after the intervention and that. And um, so we do have to kind of narrow it down to firefighters and, and paramedics just at this stage. And um, but we're very much aware that you know the the potential is there, and we've already got to say that expression of interest. And people from other services are saying that's, that's something they would like to see, or they uh, within their you know their groups as well. Um, and probably another important thing I should remember about mention about the project as well is we uh, have Mental Health Ireland have, have come on board with us and they're giving us great support um, and they're going to, they, they're promoting their Connect Cafes, which is kind of peer support. This, it'll be peer support for the family members. So we're hoping that after each intervention group that's involved in intervention will set up a, a cafe with, um, so it'll give family members somewhere to turn to and find that they're, you know, the first responder is, having these reactions or they're, you know, they're, at least they have someone to turn to that gets it or will have some similar. We found through our co-design up to now to, to design the intervention, we had family members in and, and they're very much 
you know, they're, they're, they're talking to each other and that, there's that shared experience. So we, our, our co-design is kind of our uh, first responders, our family members, and then we have organizational representatives as well. And, and that's been very powerful, the, the feedback and the information that we're getting through that co-design process. Very good. That sounds, that sounds really, uh, really promising. Just for, for anybody listening who's interested, um, all the details are on the website, uh, hugs at home. Uh, .eu, .eu, isn't it? Hugsathome.eu, yeah. And like it, all the information's on there. There's, there's QR codes for, for linking up to the expression of interest and um, email addresses and all, and all sorts. And we're, we are kind of, this is probably one of the platforms we use, but we are currently seeking participants and recruiting. So we're recruiting through some of the, the organizations and hopefully get on radio stations, things like that. So we're kind of promote it as much as we can over the next next month or two if we get get participants in for our for our intervention days so the intervention days will run until uh, march april next year and then the, the remainder of the year will be on the evaluation and, and uh, preparing for the conclusion of the project i look forward to seeing the results of that i think people really be- families will really benefit from that and families benefiting from it will mean the responders will benefit from it ultimately yeah, all of that that's definitely that's the whole the whole the, the whole ethos of, of what Movember are doing as well. That is, is like it's it's they, they recognize the, the role I think first responders play in in you know raising funds for them. So I think they're they're very keen to, to give back. So that was one of the, the criteria that had to be based around first responders. But yeah, that that's the whole point is um if our family members and our trusted others are go, are going to be giving us that support, well that they have to be supported too. So um, so hopefully by supporting them and giving them the skills and and the, the the peer support that they you know will enhance their resilience and their mental health and that hopefully will feed into the, the first responder as well. So organisations will benefit as well. Their you know the the mental health and resilience of the first responders will be will be hopefully enhanced. So plus it like it doesn't take away from the fact that organisations have resources as well and and this you know CISM that we spoke about earlier in, in Dublin Fire Brigade is 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 very much important as well and, and a part of that support it it is you know equally important for organisations to recognise the you know that not all the support is within the organisation that you know as first responders we we reach out to our loved ones and those we live with and those we trust you know so it's important that everyone is uh, is looked after. That's brilliant, Brian. Um, thanks very much for your time. And that's was a really interesting uh, kind of summary and chat about CISM and, and really interesting to learn about the, the Hugs at Home project and looking forward to seeing the, the outcome from it. And hopefully it's something that, you know, if you prove your intervention is a useful intervention and that it's working, then hopefully we'll see that rolled out more widespread across the different organizations in the future. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that that would be the, the long term goal, I suppose, would be that yeah, it would, would grow and, and develop and, and, and encompass other organizations. And, and thanks very much, Stephen, for having us and, and giving me the opportunity to, to talk about um, the hugs at home. And, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get some people that are listening to, to come and, and join us or our at least have a look at our website and see see what it's all about so again uh thanks again brian for for popping on the podcast and uh best luck with uh the project appreciate it Stephen. thanks very much after an incident sism can be a useful tool but sometimes sism isn't enough to deal with the after effects of a critical incident so the other options we have are medically guided aftercare and You've got the options of an employee assistance program where counselling is available. I'm delighted to be joined by Viv to share some of her personal experience with how she used the EAP 
thanks, Viv. Thanks, Steve. I'm just going to talk a bit about the EAP, which is the Employee Assistance Programme. This is a service within the Occupational Health Department of not just healthcare services, but a lot of many big companies across all industries are now offering this service to their staff. So very early in my career in the ambulance service, I had a very traumatic, life-changing experience. Thankfully, I had my family and two of my best friends within the service that were there for me from the very beginning after the incident. I also had an officer who was very supportive. Thankfully, he had the foresight to put me in touch with the EAP. Now, initially, I was reluctant to attend as by nature, I don't generally talk about things and I thought, albeit stupidly at the time, that this was a sign of weakness. Anyway, I went along to the first session and my opinion about talking things out completely changed. I realised that speaking about and going through the event with the professional neutral person who didn't know me was probably the best thing I had ever done. Now, this wasn't a quick or easy process. There were times even after attending EAP that I didn't feel good and felt quite raw after attending. I almost quit my job twice while I was healing and thankfully I had that good officer who wouldn't hear of me quitting and told me to take all the time I needed to get over the incident and not to make rash decisions. So I attended these appointments and the EAP counsellor I had was absolutely fantastic. She was objective, logical and extremely compassionate to what I was going through. She told me that the emotions I was feeling were normal and understandable and she also told me the truth of how I would probably feel in the future and all of those feelings would be normal too. She told me that my experience will never leave me, but I will learn to live and deal with it with the coping methods that we spoke about. And she was right. I attended the EAP for several months, and even towards the end of my sessions, the EAP told me, Viv, I think you're doing great, and I don't think you need to be here anymore. And funnily enough, I was actually thinking the same thing, and I was going to say it to her on that day. She did say that the door was always open if I do need to come back, but thankfully I didn't feel the need that I had to. Now, it's only because of having the support of my family, friends and the professional help from the EAP that I ended up having a 17-year career within the ambulance service. Now, what I want to say is that the EAP are not just available for traumatic incidents. They are there for us at all times. Like Anne and Steve were on about, the day-to-day -day nature of pre-hospital care takes its toll on all of us mentally without us even realising it. We forget that we are human too, and we are not immune to what we are exposed to on a daily basis. Dealing with deaths, traumatic injuries, chronic illnesses, the effects of addiction and mental health issues of our patients, aggression and violence towards us, as well as the work volume, can grind us down emotionally. This, as Anne was saying, will affect you physically as well. If you are feeling the effects of the nature of the job, reach out, talk with your peers, see if that helps you. If not, talk to someone in the EAP which you might find easier and will find helpful. There is zero shame in talking to someone or looking for help. It is not a sign of weakness. We need to get rid of the stigma that we have to be strong and we're not suitable for pre-hospital care if we are affected by what we see and experience as first responders. Personally, I think it's a sign of strength and self-awareness that something isn't right and that you want to rectify it. It is important that you look after yourself and if you feel that things are getting on top of you and you feel you need help, contact your occupational health department and make appointment with the EAP. Do not suffer in silence. So that's my little bit and I'll hand you back to Steve to wrap up now. 
So thanks, Phil, for sharing that story with us and how you experienced EAP. And that brings to the end October's episode, part two. Thanks very much for listening. If you've been affected by anything brought up in this episode, please seek help. Don't suffer in silence. Help is available through SISM, peer supporters, your employee assistance program, normal GP, or by looking up the HC website for mental health support. Thanks for listening. Take care. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.